Welcome to episode 91 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is Dr. Karen Wayland, CEO of the Gridwise Alliance and CEO of KW Energy Strategies. Gridwise Alliance is a nonprofit, member-driven trade association which convenes a diverse ecosystem of electricity industry stakeholders to define solutions to the most pressing challenges facing the nation's electric grid. Gridwise champions technologies, policies, and investments that are needed for a modernized, secure, reliable, resilient, and affordable grid to support decarbonization of the U.S. energy and transportation sectors. Karen is a recognized expert in national energy and environmental policy and served in leadership positions at the highest levels of government and nonprofits, including establishing a team for Secretary Moniz at the U.S. Department of Energy during the Obama administration and working on energy and climate legislation for Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and Senator Harry Reid when he was Majority Whip. Welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat, and I'm here with Karen Wayland, CEO of the Gridwise Alliance and CEO of KW Energy Strategies. Karen, welcome to the Climate Champions. Thank you very much. With regards to climate change, what was your motivating moment when you first decided you had to do something about it? I don't know that there was a single moment. In fact, I know that there wasn't a single moment. I kind of gradually came to be working in climate change. My background is a water scientist. And of course, lots of people who are studying water are thinking about climate change. But when I was doing my research, I was thinking about groundwater modeling and geochemistry and land use and how land use changed and not as much about climate change. And of course, that was the late 1990s into 2001. And so we knew climate change was happening. People were working on it, but the urgency of the issue didn't really permeate all science like it kind of does now. And so when I came to Washington on a Congressional Science Fellowship and I started working on a whole range of different issues from water to, well, that's where I started working on energy issues. And, and it wasn't really that I was working on climate change at that point. In fact, after I left the Hill and I went to the Natural Resources Defense Council, the environmental community was arranged in, we had an energy team across all of the big organizations and we had a climate team. And I was kind of instrumental in helping them marry the two because I kept saying, you can't talk about climate without talking about energy, and you can't talk about energy without talking about climate. So we ended up merging our energy teams and our climate teams, both at the staff level and at the CEO level. And I guess it was at that moment that I became concerned about energy and climate, but I didn't start off my career thinking about climate. What drives you? Why is it personally important to you? It's a cliche, but climate change is really the existential crisis of our time. It affects everything. And if you're a doubting Thomas, and you want to point to CO2 levels changing over the millennia, that's fine. But if you look at every science discipline, you will find impacts of climate change, whether it's water or oceans or public health. Even think about 
I am a grid geek and working for Gridwise Alliance. You think about the wildfires that have been caused by transmission lines, but exacerbated by climate change because it's drying out the forests. You look at whether or not we can efficiently transmit more and more electricity across long distances, and that's impacted by climate change with the ability to cool equipment, generating facilities. There isn't a discipline in this country, in the world, that isn't affected by climate change. And the causes are both systemic and big, and you can blame it on corporations, but we also each individually are part of the solution in terms of taking actions, both in our daily life and in the kind of advocacy that we support for how we're going to deal with climate change. Is there anything that personally drives you? other than the impact to the world, which is a big driver. No, I'm driven by the solutions. I mean, I'm not a doom monger. So I am excited by the potential of the solutions to our climate problem. And so that's what is really driving me. And I, I recognize the massive catastrophe that this world will face if we don't address climate change. But what I think about on a daily basis is not that catastrophe, but the solutions and how we can get more of those clean energy solutions online. Thinking about the catastrophe doesn't usually help you take action, right? No, it doesn't. You just want to crawl into your closet and turn the lights off. When you meet people that don't understand the facts behind climate change or don't think there is climate change, how do you convince them that it's real? I have to say that I don't meet that many people who, at least when I first meet them, want to dive into a discussion on climate change. Well, let's just be clear. I haven't met that many people over the last year. We're in lockdown. (laughs) One of the things I raise is what I just talked about before, which is that you may have a particular set of doubts based on what you're hearing, but we can attack the issue of climate change from any number of scientific disciplines. And given that I'm a reformed scientist, I will hit you with the science. And I do it in a gentle way. I, I don't think I'm that vested in convincing that many people that climate change is real and it's happening. So I'm not going to argue with people. I'm just going to move on to some different topic if somebody I meet doesn't believe climate change is real. What do you do at Gridwise Alliance or at KW Energy Strategies to help mitigate climate change? Well, at Gridwise Alliance, we are focused on grid modernization and how to accelerate that transition. And one of the reasons for the transition to a modern grid is to provide a platform for all of those clean energy solutions that are going to help us meet the climate challenge. So that's one thing that I'm very focused on is how to have conversations with people who are pushing for greater deployment of climate solutions like distributed energy resources and utility scale renewables and talk about how if you don't make parallel investments in the grid, then we're not going to meet our climate goals because the grid is the connective tissue between all of these clean energy solutions. And if it can't support those clean energy solutions, we just won't meet our climate goals. So I spent a lot of time thinking about how to engage with stakeholders to have that conversation, how to document the benefits of grid modernization. And then in KW Energy Strategies, I continue to work on grid modernization. I work on some cybersecurity issues, which are really critical for the changing nature of the electricity system itself. And also have, over the last few years, spent a fair amount of time working with the environmental community on either initiatives on clean energy or on this kind of education side on how to build out the clean energy networks that we need. How has the pandemic impacted what you do? I have been working from home 
almost since leaving the Obama administration in 2017. So from a day-to-day perspective, it hasn't changed for me personally that much. I've done consulting before. Before I went into the Obama administration, I was doing consulting and I felt it could be very isolating working for yourself because you worked in your office and you had to do phone calls and things. I think that now that the world is embracing working from home and we have all these technologies like Zoom and Slack, that staying engaged with people and and networking is easier than it was in the past. And that's the benefit of these new communication technologies. In terms of policy, 2020 felt to me an awfully lot like 2008, which was the last big economic downturn that we had. And I started thinking about what happened in 2008 and 2009 with the efforts to try to help the economy recover. And I thought about what in the grid space a recovery would look like, an economic recovery, investments to create jobs. That changed my focus because I had been thinking about how do we work with the states on grid modernization. And once the pandemic hit and the economy really took a major downturn and Congress started thinking about recovery measures, I started thinking about grid investments as one of the potential engines for that economic recovery. Is the pandemic one of the reasons that you started pushing for the grid modernization spending package? It is the reason. I worked for Speaker Pelosi in 2009. When the Recovery Act was passed, we did oversight of the implementation of the Recovery Act. So I thought a lot about what issues we had in getting money out the door and what a recovery package and investments in the grid looked like in 2009. And I started developing what a modern grid modernization investment package would look like. And so, yeah, it was all about the pandemic and the economic downturn that led me to start thinking about if Congress was going to do a new stimulus package like the Recovery Act, what the grid should look like. And in 2009, Congress gave about $10.5 billion to grid programs. Our investment recommendations are $50 billion, and I think that's reasonable because the grid is so much more important now to meeting our climate goals than we realized in 2009. And the focus really needs to be on what the grid has to look like in order to be that platform to accommodate all the clean energy solutions that we want to plug into the grid. We've been talking to Capitol Hill for at least the last five or six months, and we've gotten no pushback on the idea that the importance of the grid has been magnified over the last 11 years, and that our recommendations for the $50 billion are well in line with what is needed. I don't know what Congress will do, but the Biden administration is talking about an infrastructure package. And of course, the grid is a critical piece of the country's infrastructure. And so we're expecting that there will be focus on the grid and we've got the recommendations for them. What types of projects would you like to see funded with that money? We have identified a number of buckets of funding. The first is for flexibility. So investments into the kinds of technologies that will allow grid operators to have a lot more flexibility given all of the needs that the grid has to respond to, whether it's variable renewables, whether it's cybersecurity, whether it's increased severe weather, whether it's issues around the increased need for extreme reliability in certain industries. What has to be deployed on the grid in order to make it a more flexible network? So those are things like data, controls, sensors to give the grid operators more visibility and more information, things like storage, things like software services. So that's one bucket. Another bucket is the kinds of investments that need to be made in order to allow 
buildings and electric vehicles to be greater assets to the grid. So how do we make sure that buildings can be integrated fully into the grid? How do we make sure that vehicles can be integrated so that grid operators can call on them to provide grid services? So that's another bucket. Another bucket is cybersecurity. So we can't have a modern digital grid with all sorts of increasingly interconnected, particularly on the ends, technologies like smart appliances, like smart doorbells, like your thermostat, all of these things that are interconnected, that are part of the internet of things. There are millions and millions and millions more access points to the grid than that we had five, seven years ago. And we have a very digital grid where lots of the operational commands are passing through networks in digitized packets. We cannot have a modern grid unless we're focused on cybersecurity. And I know that many utility executives go to bed at night and have trouble sleeping because they're worried about the cyber threats. So we're recommending a significant increase in the budget of the office at the Department of Energy that does cyber work, and that's on technology deployment for cyber prevention, for more money for the kinds of monitoring and threat assessment platforms that they've been funding for small and medium utilities, and for workforce, because workforce is a huge need in the cyberspace and is one of the limiting factors for how we're able to protect our grid. Another bucket is for resilience big picture resilience, money for state energy programs to fund microgrids and storage for shelters for communities during extreme weather events, for hospitals, money for the Department of Defense for mission critical energy infrastructure. That's a very large chunk of money. And the recommendations for that came from a whole large coalition of which the National Association of State Energy Officials is at the center of that. And the recommendations in that bucket total somewhere near $18 billion. And those recommendations actually came to us from Capitol Hill. So I feel pretty confident that $18 billion is something that is politically acceptable, but I will tell you it's likely less than what is needed for building full resilience. Part of that money we recommended should go to defense critical energy infrastructure. There was a law passed a few years ago that required the Department of Energy to notify utilities if they own defense critical energy infrastructure, that kind of infrastructure that is providing power to defense installations and bases. So DOE did that in the last year or so. They notified all these utilities, but there's no money either at DOD or DOE to help those utilities do the assessments and hardening of that infrastructure now that we know where it is. So we recommended some funding for that as well, for the threat assessment and hardening of defense critical energy infrastructure. Another bucket of funding is the Manufacturing Tax Credit, 48C, for domestic manufacturing of the supply chain for grid infrastructure. That 48C tax credit would cover a broader set of manufacturing than just the grid, but the grid would be one of the categories. And then finally, we have a broader workforce development category. I mentioned it in the cyberspace, but more broadly speaking, DOE should be spending more money on on developing a diverse and well-trained energy workforce, particularly in the grid area. And in fact, the kind of multipliers and jobs that we get out of grid investments are pretty high compared to other investments that can be made for infrastructure. And so making sure that if Congress is going to put money towards grid modernization, that we actually are also making sure there's enough workers to do the deployment, that's going to be really critical. So the workforce has to be done at the same time as we're making the investments in the grid itself. I unleashed a lot there. You asked. <laughs> Can you talk about your prior background? Sure. I 
trained as a water scientist. So I did a lot of deep groundwater modeling, geochemical modeling. I set up Michigan State University's trace element lab. So I actually set up a clean lab and I was pipetting samples and measuring at parts per trillion in this positive pressure white lab wearing a lab coat. And I can do it, but it is not my favorite thing in the world at all. And I've always had a lens of policy focus. My research was to produce data that could inform policymakers. So when I was finishing up my PhD, I tried to figure out what the next step would be. And I uncovered this AAAS Congressional Science Fellow Program, which takes PhD scientists at various stages of their career and brings them to Washington and allows them to work in Congress. And it's kind of like an exchange program where the scientists learn about how policy is made and the policy makers learn more about how scientists think. So when I finished my PhD, I came to Washington and went through the two-week initiation training you know, in Washington. And that coincidentally was the time during which the 9-11 terrorist attacks happened. So that kind of changed how Washington was thinking about all policy the year of my fellowship. But I ended up interviewing with a number of congressional offices and settling on working with Senator Harry Reid of Nevada. And at that point, he was the majority whip, so second in charge of the Senate. I wasn't really thinking about power. I, I really just wanted to work on water issues in a congressional office, but it turns out that it was a really good career move to work for Harry Reid and a personal move too, because that's where I met my husband. I learned, really learned about how Congress works and about how to pull the levers of power to actually get things done. And I worked on a whole variety of issues, not so much water because the person who covered water didn't really want any help. So I ended up picking up a lot of different issues from Yucca Mountain to Indian Affairs. And I really learned how to be a staffer, picking up issues that you don't know much about and then just diving into them and getting enough information to provide what a decision maker needs to make a decision. And I did that for a little over a year and decided that I really liked Washington and I wasn't sure what the next step was, but I was grocery shopping one day right after I left the Reed office and somebody from the Reed office called me and told me that they were putting my resume in for a job over at the Natural Resources Defense Council in their legislative shop. And I said, well, that's great. I don't have a job. So that sounds good. So I thought I'd do that for a year or so and ended up staying at NRDC for six years and running the lead shop for them. And then also running this coalition of 30-something national environmental groups working on climate and energy issues. And so that's where I really became seeped in climate and energy policy. Congress was working on the Energy Policy Act at that point. It took them four or five years to pass the Energy Policy Act of 2005. And I read every version that came out, all 1,200 pages. I would print it out and read it. And then I ran this coalition that was advocating for and against certain provisions of it. And then, as I mentioned, I helped lead the combination of the climate and energy teams and then we started working on climate legislation. So that was back with Lieberman Warner and Warner Lieberman, the early comprehensive climate bills that we worked on. From there, I went to work for Speaker Pelosi and I was her senior advisor during 2009 to 2011. And that was during the Recovery Act. It was during the Waxman-Markey climate debates. It was during the BP oil spill. We went to China. We took a congressional delegation to the Copenhagen climate negotiations. We went to Canada to talk about climate with the Canadian government. So it was a pretty wild and exciting time. And then we lost the house and it got very boring because you don't do policy when you're in the minority in the house. So I left and did a number of different things before joining the Obama administration at the Department of Energy, working for Secretary Moniz. On one of my podcasts recently, somebody said that Harry Reid stopped the carbon trade bill from being voted on 
Is that true? And what happened there? I don't believe that's true. Okay. It is true that after the Waxman-Markey bill passed in the House, it went over to the Senate and it sat over there without any committee action for quite a while. And Barbara Boxer was up for re-election and was being pushed to take the climate bill to the left. And there were a lot of competing interests trying to move the bill even more to the center, to the center right. And the coalition of utilities, of environmental groups, of others who helped deliver a victory in the House side, on the Senate side, wanted to renegotiate all of the provisions that we had passed in the Senate bills. In particular, for example, the allocation of emissions allowances. That delicate balance of who got which allowances allowed us to pass the bill on the House side. And all the interests that got pieces of it in the House then wanted to open up the allocation formula in the Senate. So there were a whole number of reasons why the bill didn't move in the Senate. And at some point, Reed said, that's it. We don't have the votes, so I'm moving on. And he has the prerogative as the Senate leader to decide which bills get to the floor. And I think he decided that there was no way that the bill was going to get 60 votes. And so he wasn't even going to waste any more energy. He made that decision, I think, at least six months after we passed our bill. So that was enough time to try to build some support. And it it just kind of foundered in the Senate. I don't think he stopped it because he didn't want it to pass. I mean, he is an ardent, ardent supporter of ambitious climate action. But he's also a realist in terms of what could have gotten done on the Senate floor. Can you talk about setbacks that you had in your career? I always tell people that they shouldn't be afraid to take a job and then leave it after a year or two if it turns out that it's not what they expected. And that it's as important to know what you don't like to do as to know what you like to do. And I didn't know that in the beginning. And I have taken a few turns at jobs that just were a terrible fit for me. And I agonized over leaving or staying or what should I do? And in the end, I believe that where I am today is a perfect mix of the choices I made to stay someplace and the choices I made to leave because it didn't fit. But at those moments when you're making those decisions, they can be really terrifying and hard and you take it, you beat yourself up. I left one of my high profile positions to take a job where I was heavily recruited. I was going to be working on climate issues. And when I got there, the job wasn't at all what I had been promised. And not only was it not at all what I had promised, the funding for that job and the work that we were going to do on the first day I showed up was announced to be significantly less than what it was promised to me as I was going into the job. And so instead of being able to hire a whole team to work on climate, I was being asked to fire people. It was a huge setback for me because... When you have a high profile job, you only leave that job once. You're leveraging the relationships that you have, the power that you have in that particular job, and the fact that a lot of people want to talk to you in that job. And when they capture you, when they actually hire you, that they're getting you. You only do that once because once you leave that high profile job, you can't go back and make a different decision about the job you took. So making that wrong decision was a huge setback for me. Personally, I left a high profile job for a job that was terrible that I left pretty quickly. And I could have left that high profile job for something that was much more significant and actually did more for me personally and professionally and that didn't create such angst 
over the course of the job. So I got over it, but it's not on my resume. (laughs) (laughs) But you're also saying that in some ways, the different jobs you've had, I think, including that one, set you up for the job right now. And that mixture was necessary for you to be able to do the job that you're doing now. You know what I learned from that job? I had had many jobs up to that point. What I learned about organizations from that experience was that it's not enough for you to understand where you sit in the official hierarchy of the job. Who do you report to? Who does that person report to? Who reports to you? What's your job function? What are the parallel job functions in your team, your larger team? It's as important to understand the, not the power structures, but the strategy structures that exist within the organization for making decisions. So for example, if you have an annual strategy meeting about where the organization is going to go, who goes to those meetings? Who is in regular meetings with the CEO to decide basic business? Who does the CEO call for advice in making decisions and for gathering information about the organization? Those informal networks that you often don't see, you usually don't see those in an org chart, are as important as the org chart. Figuring out who has relationships with the board, who goes to the board meeting. Those things are important for how you can influence, especially as you age and move up the ladder in your career. The ability to kind of influence the direction of an organization is important, I think, for many people. And so understanding both the formal and the informal organization of the place that you're going to work is important. With Gridwise, you had the benefit of working there as policy director first. I did. It's a pretty horizontal organization. I will say about Gridwise that the importance of a board and having a really engaged board and an active chair, that is really a recipe for success. I worked for a nonprofit that had a very inactive board and it's not a fun thing. I mean, you really need partners and you need somebody to help share your vision and to make sure that what you're doing is actually beneficial to the industry and the members and the individuals. So having an active board is critical and I'm, I'm excited about that. So thank you, Lee, for being so active and interested. Sounds like you're going to make me very busy. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Richie says. <laughs> Can you talk about the successes you're most proud of? Sure. One of the successes was working at the Department of Energy. I set up the state local tribal policy office for Secretary Moniz, raising the game of DOE with the states was one of his top priorities because so much of the work in managing the energy resources happens at the state level. And DOE has a lot of resources for the states, but it's really siloed. And we created a venue, a forum for the states to interact with DOE at a level just below the secretary, where we were able to listen to their concerns and help respond with the resources, the significant resources of DOE to a more comprehensive aid request from the states. We were also able to raise their issues directly with the secretary on a regular basis. And I'm pretty proud of the work that we did. And a lot of the organizations that represent state officials sent a letter to the incoming Trump administration supporting keeping the state and local policy office intact. And one of their top priorities for the incoming Biden administration was reestablishing the team that I created. So I didn't do that alone. I had amazing staff. I had amazing partners in the state groups. And of course, I had the secretary, and that was one of his top priorities. So I got a lot of attention 
I was very proud of that. And the other thing that we did at DOE that I'm really proud of is the quadrennial energy review. And in fact, my work on the quadrennial energy review is how I started working on grid issues. I was doing the state and local work and my team also directed all the stakeholder engagement for this giant interagency project that was the QER. And at some point it became clear that the electricity work, the first installment of the QER was about energy infrastructure. So not just electricity, but transmission and distribution infrastructure for oil and gas, liquid fuels. We even looked at the intercoastal waterways as a transmission infrastructure for moving energy products, coal, and we looked at the rail system. At some point during the process, it became clear that the electricity work needed a stronger lead. And so I took over all the grid work, the transmission distribution work that was being done. And I knew a fair amount, but not that much. And I had to dive into all the analytical work that we were doing. I had to learn a whole new set of stakeholders and we had to produce results. And we, I think, produced a really good product, not just the electricity chapter, but the entire quadrennial energy review. We had 70 something recommendations and within a year, more than half of them had been adopted in bipartisan legislation that passed and was signed into law. So I was pretty proud about that. And, and the work that we did in the electricity chapter made it clear when you compared electricity to the other subsectors of the energy industry that electricity was the kind of foundational lifeline support system for the economy and for everything else in the economy. We took on the electricity system much more in depth for the second installment of the QER. So I think we teed it up really well in the first QER. So I would say it's another place where I'm proud of the work that we did. It sounds very exciting. I remember when that was being worked on. Can you talk about your vision for the future? How do you see the country, the world, 20, 30, 40 years out? Well, that's an interesting question. It won't look like what it looks like now. Will we have solved the climate change problem? I doubt it, but I think we'll be a lot closer. We won't know the technologies that get developed between now and 30, 40 years out. In fact, that's why it's really important that we both deploy, deploy, deploy now, and that we invest in R&D for innovation. We have to have both. And I think we can meet our near-term goals, our 2030 or 2035 climate goals with existing technologies. But I don't think that we can meet our 2050 goals with existing technologies. And so when you ask me, what does the world look like with respect to climate by then? I think that we will see not just increased deployment of existing technologies, but a whole new set of technologies that are being widely deployed. And you think about the technology diffusion of new emerging technologies over the last 10 years, and particularly in the energy sector, it's fascinating how fast those curves of deployment, both the cost decline and the increase in deployment are happening. And I think that with the climate imperative as a driver, these new technologies will also see similar curves of reducing costs and increasing deployment. Because if we have a climate policy that's telling us that we need to deploy these things, it'll keep those curves aggressive. Is there a particular technology that you're very excited about? I'm really passionate about the growing focus on utility communications and the role of utility communications, both in grid modernization and providing benefits to the community. You've probably heard me talk about the Recovery Act, the Chattanooga Utility EPB, and the investments that they made in the utility communications network. They took $111 million, and it was a cost-share grant. They came up with 50% private capital. So the entire 
investments that they made in their utility communication network was about $211 million to upgrade their communication network to be kind of the foundation of their smart grid work. At the same time, they were laying fiber for their internal communication network. They also committed to provide broadband access to every single one of their customers in their footprint. So they started off committing to be a one gigabyte community. They're now a 10 gigabyte community. And the investments that EPV made and the federal government and Congress through the Recovery Act made in Chattanooga has resulted in billions of dollars in economic benefits to the Chattanooga and the broader community in terms of attracting new business tech companies and others. The kind of economic revival of the downtown can be in part directly related to those investments. The ability of businesses to actually take advantage of the 21st century and be part of the 21st century economy. When I visited Chattanooga a couple of years after they made those investments, we were still hearing stories about businesses just on the outside of the boundary of the EPB footprint. So I, I heard about a florist there, a floral company, who was still using dial-up internet. So you can imagine dial-up internet on one side, and then because of the investments that the utility made on the other side, people with 10 gigabyte really fast internet and the difference in the ability to participate in today's economy with that kind of speed. And so I, I look at rural areas. The pandemic has really shown a light on the digital divide, both in the urban areas. And there are significant parts of urban areas where people of lower income don't have access to regular internet, as well as rural areas where they may still be doing dial-up. The utilities have the relationships with the customers, and there are places that the telecom companies are not interested in going in order to provide that access to the digital economy, but the utilities can. And if we work with the utilities to build out their communication networks for many reasons, I think there are huge societal benefits, not just climate, but broader than climate in focusing in on utility communications. Has the pandemic impacted the way that you think about the future? Not really, no. And there are a lot of reports out about how 2020 saw the lowest levels of traffic, that air pollutants are down, that carbon emissions are down, and a pandemic is no way to solve the climate crisis. The only way that I think it has changed how I think about things, and I think this is true for a lot of people is that the way this country and other countries do business can change. People don't have to travel as much to interact with people. We figured out how to have virtual conferences. We figured out how to engage with our coworkers over Zoom. And I think office spaces will change. The need for office space will change. So that could have some climate impacts. But I think that people are going to slowly return to some sense of what 2019 looked like in terms of our travel and our need to interact with each other in person. So there are some changes in the way we do work, but does it mean we don't need as stringent goals for our power sector, for our industrial sector? No. So it doesn't change what we need to do. It just changes the way we might have meetings to talk about what we're going to do. What's one piece of advice you have for people that want to help? Certainly take individual action, but I would say to support organizations that are pushing for the policies and investments on the big scale. So whether it's an environmental organization or a trade group, those groups, by virtue of aggregating individual interest and action and resources, are able to exert an influence on policy that most individuals can't. And so I think it's important to find organizations that are working in the climate space that you can support their mission and then go ahead and make sure that you are paying your membership dues, that you're supporting them. Because 
you are contributing to the budget, the underlying budget of the organization so it can do its work, but you're also lending your voice as a member of supporters. So you'll be asked to do things like send communications to members of Congress to support a particular policy or a state legislator. And so I would say that in addition to looking for ways to weatherize your home and reduce waste and things like that, I think it's important to find organizations that share your values and support them. Do you have any questions for me? You worked in the utility space for many years. What is it besides podcasts and tasting hot sauces? Do you focus on these days? <laughs> hot sauce. If anybody is interested on YouTube, you could check out Crevat Attack and check out me and my brothers rating different hot sauces. Other than the hot sauce on the podcast, I'm advising about a dozen companies, usually as a board or advisory board member, that are focused on climate change mitigation in some way. I feel that each of those companies can make a difference and that I can make the biggest difference by helping them to be successful. Yeah. And on that note, I'm going to wrap this up and I'm going to wrap it up with a wrap. All right. Cara, <laughs> Karen enjoyed energy and climate, so she thought she ought to become a reformed scientist that used to study water because climate causes impacts to the planet. A crime. You said it is the existential crisis of our time. If we want to be a successfully energized nation, we have to get more projects and jobs in grid modernization, security, and resiliency. They're grid issues to fill in. So you're asking the administration for $50 billion. With the weather getting extreme, we need to leverage our brilliance and invest and create a grid with more resilience. The problem is urgent. We have to place our bets and tackle the rising issue of cyber threats by investing in the grid, by turning those infrastructure knobs, we can create thousands and thousands of jobs. It gave you job satisfaction, something we all need. And you also met your husband when you worked for Harry Reid. You learned more about climate and about energy when you worked at the NRDC. You were proud when you heard all the state pleas that government should keep doing what it was doing under Secretary Moniz. The QER gave you an overall energy view, and it made you proud, too. That's a quadrennial energy review. You're excited to upgrade utility communication, like the project done by Chattanooga with ARRA legislation. I hope very much that Gridwise will prevail, and I think we've come to the podcast trail end. Thank you very much, Karen Whalen. I was very excited to hear Karen's perspective on proactively leaving a job that isn't right for you. Whether it was her realization that energy and climate issues were more exciting and important than her working in a white lab coat on water science issues, or leaving a bad job that didn't live up to its billing, Karen has demonstrated the strength to fight for your passions and make a difference in the world. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Karen blew me away with her knowledge of all things grid, from security to transportation electrification to transmission, renewables, and energy storage. She's on top of all of it and driving change at the highest level of government, helping to mitigate climate change. Mm -hmm.